the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, episode 503, for Sunday, May 25th, 2014. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab. The show where we come together, you come together, we all tune in when it's when convenient, and uh, we answer some questions, we ask some questions, we share some tips. Uh, next week, we're going to share some cool stuff found, so make sure you send that in. That show will actually be recorded on Friday. But today, we're doing question and answer. We'll talk about some fun stuff that, uh, that we found uh, that we've been using here, too. And the goal, of course, is for all of us together to learn some new stuff each and every time we join up here. This episode is sponsored by Squarespace, squarespace.com slash MGG for all of your domains and uh, not, not your domains for all your web hosting and website creation. And also a uh, new sponsor, E3 at directmailmac.com with direct mail for the Mac. We'll tell you a little bit more about that. But man, if you've got a mailing list to send out, this is the software to check out. And we'll tell you more about it a little bit later in the show here in Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. Here in sunny, warm Fairfield, Connecticut, this is John F. Braun. Happy Towel Day, John F. Braun. That's right. What are we talking about when we talk about that? First off, uh, do you know how this day was arrived at as Towel Day, Dave, or was it just a random selection? I I think there's more to it than than just a random selection. I think it May 25th was the day that Douglas Adams had the idea to write Hitchhiker's Guide. Is that correct? Uh, I, I, I may okay. be making that up. No, because it's not his birthday. And, and for those that don't know, uh, Douglas Adams, who uh, was a uh, Apple master, one of the people that Apple honored for his contributions to just life, the universe and everything. <laughs> um, if, if there's anybody listening to this show that has not listened to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you have to do it. Now, I was brought up on it, Dave. I actually my first exposure to it was the original BBC radio broadcast which you can still get it, it may be kind of difficult but that was my exposure and i i was just hooked it was just you know i was still a teenager uh, sometimes i would i would listen to it uh to put me to sleep and and i think i have most of the original <laughs> broadcast memorized uh, as all the terms but it's just cool. a brilliant yeah, sci-fi I, comedy is how i would uh classify it i never did the bbc broadcast i read i read the books um and mm-hmm. then uh, and then I, I I mean, I listened to some of the BBC broadcasts, but that was not my not even close to my first exposure. And then, of course, there was the film uh, several years back. So evidently, the I, I was incorrect here in my uh, made up assumption about the origins of today being Tal Day. It was that uh, he died on May, mm-hmm. May 20. Uh, sorry, May 11th, 2001. And uh, someone decided that uh, two weeks from the date of his death uh, should be towel day. Uh, and so the first one was held on the 25th of May, 2001. And we have continued that tradi- tradition for the last uh, 13 years. So there you go. And if anything, Dave, uh, I think the, the biggest, <laughs> although we tell people don't get caught, I, I would say that uh, what Douglas Adams and the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy suggested is don't 
connected. I think that's almost, but not quite as important. I think, I think the two together are probably the best <laughs> pieces of advice that anyone could share. Uh, as, it's the best package. It's a, it's an advice sandwich right there. And you don't even need something in the middle because it's so stuffed right there. It's, All right. Uh, and I, ha- I have to address uh, the, so our, our chat room here. Dave, how do you get to our chat room? MacGeekGab.com slash stream. Greetings, everybody. Thanks for joining us in the chat room today. Lots of folks here. It's a fun and I guess one day. person said they didn't particularly care for Marvin. Marvin in the story is the paranoid android. And actually, he was probably... <laughs> One of my most favorite characters in in the whole um, in the whole series, uh, second to probably Zephod B. Roblox, but uh, uh, Marvin the Paranoid Android. That's right. So, John, I want to talk about our new sponsor first. Here, uh, I want to talk Excellent. about E3 software with Direct Mail for the Mac uh, at directmailmac.com. So these guys, and they've they've been writing this software for a while. There's there's um, they're always doing new stuff with it. But they identified some real pain points that existed in the whole world of sending out email, right? So if you have, uh, and you could be doing this for work, you could be doing this, say, for a, a club that you have or something. Like for me, we send out email uh, for the gigs that we do. You know, we have people sign up on our email list. And there's always a little bit of a problem. You can use something on the web to, to send out email, but then you're trying to design on the web, right? And, and so, you know, designing an email on the web is kind of a little clunky. Uh, some, I mean, some engines are great. They're good enough, I, I suppose, but it's tough, you know, designing on the web. The nice part about the web, of course, is that you're then using someone else's mail server to send out the email. Uh, so I've done some of that. You can do some of the stuff where you say create a mailing list in FileMaker, which is an awesome way to create a, a database. But designing an email inside FileMaker uh, sucks. Right. So so there's that. And and then there's the whole thing where we always start, which is designing an email in mail and, you know, BCCing uh, all the people on your list, which works right up until you hit the wall that your mail server uh, doesn't let you send out more than like 20 emails uh, at a time or something. So. Uh, so direct mail, they, they've actually solved all of those problems. It's a piece of Mac software. So it is a first class citizen on your Mac. It's Mac only. And it totally just works like a piece of Mac software. They've got all kinds of templates in there that you can start with. And then, of course, you can customize things to your heart's content. When you're ready to send out, you actually send through their servers. And they host your images for you. I think I think I, uh, they, they, they host your images for five years. Right. So, you know, most people aren't going to read a mailing list from today more than about uh, two weeks from now. So five years is more than plenty to have your images hosted. And they also do all the open tracking and that sort of thing to tell you how many people read your message. And uh, if people clicked on a link in it, they can track all of that, too. And it goes out through their mail, their mail servers, which they uh, manage uh, on their own and make sure that, you know, uh, they're, they're playing nice with all the the right uh, uh, spam con- conventions and all of that stuff so that you're not uh, violating anything there. Uh, and, and you just pay for the uh, the amount of email that you send out and you can pay monthly if you uh, if you want. Uh, you can pay as you go and just buy credits for numbers of emails and then just re up whenever that's time it, or or or. If you are someone who sends out a ton and ton of mail and you want to manage your own mail server, you can do that with direct mail for the Mac too. Um, it, it's really great stuff. I, I was blown away. I had not used this before because 
I'm a geek and I had kind of engineered my own solutions in the ways that I sort of described before, but they all kind of sucked um, because it, you know, just because I know how to create this stuff and manage servers and all that doesn't mean that I actually want to for something like this. Um, you know, it's not what I do all day long. And so uh, invariably that whatever solution I cobbled together using my, you know, uh, programmatic uh, duct tape and bailing wire is just that. Whereas these guys, it is what they do all day long. And so there's no reason not to leverage what they've got. So I'm really, really blown away with, uh, with direct mail here. So check it out. It's worth downloading. Uh, and then, you know, you can send out, you can buy uh, a package of email. You can buy 500 email credits for 15 bucks and, uh, or you can buy 5,000 for 60, or you can do a monthly subscription of $15 a month, which sends out as many as you want to, uh, you know, to 500 recipients. So again, it, it's just however you want to do it, but you can get your feet wet really, really cheaply and then figure out, you know, how it works for you and how to make it um, doable. But, you know, at these prices, it's totally doable, even for something like, you know, one of the rock bands I play in where we're, you know, we're not just rolling in cash. For those of you that don't know, uh, the price per uh, member that a rock band gets paid really, and this is true, it honestly has not changed since the 1960s. So rock bands that are playing in clubs don't tend to make a lot of money. Uh, and yet this, I can tell you without question, fits into the budget of that. So if it fits into the budget of that, it pretty much fits into the budget of whatever you've got going on. So check it out, directmailmac.com, uh, and it's E3 Software's direct mail for the Mac. All right, John. Last week, I promised that we would have a conversation about another upgrade that I was uh, kind of forced to consider recently. I have uh, an iMac, a 2011 iMac in my office, so it's a two, it's two and a half years old to me. It's the mid-2011 iMac, uh, and it has an Ethernet port on it. I mentioned that my Ethernet port on that started uh, only connecting at 100 megabits a second. Uh, I tried cleaning it. It's sort of half-heartedly, um, and and I I might I might should probably clean it better and see if Please, I can get that Ethernet because port the to work. transceiver in that machine should let you do gigabit and has in the past it worked Ooh. gigabit flawlessly for years and I you know I don't know Weird. what day it stopped doing this I just know that uh, when I was testing some things with um, with with um, uh, I don't know so I, I was testing something. And and I realized this machine was only doing 100. And then I looked into network preferences and, and thought, OK, fine. So I actually talked to Apple support about it, and went back and forth. And I, I thought maybe they had updated a driver that screwed things up. And they're like, if, and, if so, you're the first. And you're cabling. Oh, cabling. It's not a cabling issue. I've tried it with different okay. switches. I've tried it with different cables. Right. Yeah, yeah. In my mind, it could be is that if you're using sure. an ancient cable, the, the port may absolutely down to a slower speed okay and i thought so, so you got cat six or whatever yeah and i thought cables. maybe it, there's there were some issues with the, these green switches that shut off ports or or power down <gasps> ports when you know it, but that's not it either it's just the port won't do it and maybe i do need to just clean it but what apple suggested was you know honestly uh you're out of warranty uh, i didn't put apple care on this machine and and they said honestly your best bet might be just to get a Thunderbolt to Ethernet adapter, which is like 30 bucks. And so that made me think, well, uh, OK, I can do that. I'm using one of the Thunderbolt ports as a mini display port to power my uh, external cinema display. But I could use the other one and do that. Uh, but I, I sometimes hang a hard drive off of that uh, and use it. 
And I thought, well, what are my other options with Thunderbolt? And that made me head down this path uh, in a very timely way of using Clever. a of using a Thunderbolt dock. Okay, now there's there's three of them that I've checked out. They're all in. They basically are all the same price at two hundred bucks. Okay. Um, okay, I want to ask you. Yeah. A question. Yeah. First. Yeah. How fast can Thunderbolt go? Or is this a 10, 10 gigabits, a 10, 10 gigabits a second uh, with Thunderbolt one and, and 20 with Thunderbolt two. Okay. So clearly far beyond gigabit ethernet. Oh, way beyond. Right. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Right. No, Smart. No okay. problem. Oh, and actually, I didn't know there are two levels there because right. I, I have not yet gotten a Thunderbolt capable machine. Sure. I, I will soon. Okay. All right. So that's, that's okay. That's a great up, upgrade path or, sure. or alternate channel. Okay, it, go ahead. It is. No, it is. Um, and, and, you know, again, Thunderbolt is, it's easy to equate it to something like USB or firewire because it is just another port on the back or side of your Mac, depending on what kind of Mac you have, but it's more than that. It's not USB and, 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 or, and or firewire. And it's really not analogous to that. It's, it's more analogous to the old, you know, PCI card slots that existed inside tower computers, uh, you know, like the old Power Macs and Mac Pros and things like that. It is it is an extension of the bus. So you could get a Thunderbolt to USB three adapter or a Thunderbolt to Firewire 800 adapter. Uh, and it's just like plugging a card into your Mac. So in this case, what Apple suggested was get an Ethernet card for your Mac, i.e. a Thunderbolt to, to gigabit Ethernet adapter. Uh, and that would work fine. It would it would not even come close to utilizing the Thunderbolt bus. But most things probably don't. Um, OK, you know, they sell one, don't they? Sell they do. It's, a... it's 30 bucks. Yeah. Oh, all right. So yeah. So I thought one solution that would. But but that got me to thinking, well, wait a minute. You know, we just talked about all these SSDs. And uh, upgrading, you know, that portion of your Mac. But, you know, what if and, and that, that's a great upgrade, right? You know, for for pretty much any Mac. But really, you know, as we talked about those kind of six to eight year old Macs, uh, even five to eight year old Macs do really well with those SSD upgrades because the pricing is right. But, you know, your newer Mac, like my machine, for example, John, uh, has Thunderbolt, uh, has an SSD in it from the factory does not have USB three. It's only got USB two. And that's been a little frustrating because, you know, there's some things I want to test that are USB three and, and that sort of thing. And so uh, that's what got me thinking about Thunderbolt docs. So I tested three of them. They're all 199 bucks. And I'm going to leave an asterisk there and that I'll explain in a minute, but they're all 199 bucks. So 200 bucks gets you effectively a little breakout box. Um, and, and two of these units are almost exactly the same. In fact, I would, I would stake money that the guts of these are the same. That is CalDigit and Elgato. The, the, the layout of the ports on them is the same. The way it works is the same. Uh, one just looks a little bit different than the other. The CalDigit one is uh, a little more industrial. The Elgato one is a little more streamlined, but they do the same thing. And what they do is uh, full speed gigabit Ethernet, which I've tested. Uh, three USB three ports, all full speed. Um, and, uh, oh shoot. Now I'm, I'm losing my notes here, John, but I'll get it. I'll pull them up. Uh, a firewire 800. No, not a firewire 800 port, uh, an HDMI port on it and an extra Thunderbolt port, uh, that you could then daisy chain a drive off of. Yeah. One of the ports, uh, you have to use to connect to your Mac. So, you know, you do that and then there's a free Thunderbolt port. So you could actually daisy chain another dock 
off of this, right? So HDMI, Thunderbolt, gigabit Ethernet, and three uh, three um, USB three connectors and audio in and out in the form of mini eighth ports, so stereo audio in and out. The stereo audio and one of the USB three ports are actually on the front of this dock. The other two USB three ports are on the back, and they all work great. Uh, these two both come with a downloadable driver. You don't need the driver. The, the thing will work. Everything I just mentioned will work perfectly fine without the driver. The one thing that the driver does is it lets your iPad charge at full speed. Uh, so, you know, the full, um, uh, whatever, 2.1 amps or, uh, or whatever it is, um, the, the full speed charging will happen with this little kernel extension that m- must enable something. Um, the same driver actually works for the CalDigit one as, as the Elgato one, even though they both ship their own branded versions of, of this little driver. Um, but, uh, but it works and I've tested USB three and it does full speed, which is actually really nice because I was able to test some USB three things here that I couldn't otherwise. Uh, the Cal digit one is one ninety nine as I promised the Elgato one is two twenty nine. Here comes the asterisk. But the Elgato one comes with a Thunderbolt cable and a Thunderbolt cable will cost you about 30 bucks. So if you need a Thunderbolt cable, the price doesn't matter. You're going to buy one with the CalDigit drive or, uh, or with the CalDigit dock or not. OK. Uh, Belkin has one. Belkin has their. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. It's a Thunderbolt dock. It's the only one Belkin has. Um, yeah, CalDigit's is called the Thunderbolt station. Elgato's is called the Thunderbolt dock. Belkins is called the Thunderbolt Express Dock. Uh, Belkins is also one ninety nine. Belkins has uh, all the ports are on the back. It has two Thunderbolt ports, so allows the daisy chaining. It has the audio in and out in the form of headphone and you know the same same mini uh, stereo ports. Three USB three. It doesn't and it has gigabit Ethernet. It does not have HDMI, but it does have FireWire eight hundred, uh, and it's one ninety nine. So. Um, you pick and choose which features you want and uh, and you pick your Thunderbolt dock and now you've taken your, you know, couple year old Mac, you've given it USB three, uh, you've given it, you've given it another Ethernet port. So you and it would totally work to use link aggregation with this to get, uh, you know, double speed Ethernet. If you have like a, a NAS drive that also does link aggregation, you can do you can do some fun stuff and, and actually beam twice the data across uh, OS 10 will do link aggregation. Um, we'll get into that in another show, maybe. But uh, but these things are great. I mean, it, it really just works. And it it's cool from my standpoint. You know, I've been I switched over to a laptop in 1998 as my main machine. Right. And then and then and then a couple of years ago, well, when I got this machine switched back to the iMac, as you know, a desktop as my main machine, because syncing allows me to have a laptop uh, that I can just use when I'm on the road. John, you know, without having to live with it all the time. So. uh but it's been a long time since I've had a Mac that is feature upgradable in an easy way. And this this really did it. I mean, I added USB three ports to a Mac that does huh. not have them. Right. So that Which is kind of a, you know, uh, a cool thing for a, a, a long time geek. So, yeah. Right. OK. A couple of questions. So mm. one you mentioned. So by using the dock, you, it'll support link aggregation. Sure, because there's there's multiple Ethernet ports. 
Okay. I mean, I have one. Well, there's one Ethernet port on the dock and one in my Mac, right? So, but it's an OS. They're both seen as separate Ethernet ports. Right. Right. Okay. For those that don't, link aggregation is a feature of many operating systems that let you, I guess, bond one or more, well, more than one, the right. <laughs> Ethernet ports to get increased speed. But it's typically, based on the standard and the technology, only restricted to physical Ethernet ports. And that, for example, if you have a USB to Ethernet adapter, that won't work. Right. But oh, I guess yeah. This is, no, I, 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 I just wanted to understand this because I guess technically because of Thunderbolt yeah. it is, uh, as far as the standard is concerned, a phys- another physical Ethernet port. So right. that's very cool. Yep. Okay. The, the other observation I want to make, so we, we have a few people in the chat room that mentioned this. So you were lamenting the lack of USB 3. On, on, my, thing is, on my iMac. Yes. Yes. Now, yeah. uh, for, for those uh, like me who still have somewhat dated equipment, there is another option. I think this is the evolution. Uh, this is where Thunderbolt, uh, you know, is the evolution of an older technology called ExpressCard. Right. Because I remember I... I reviewed a uh, usb3 caldigit actually you, you mentioned yeah. them and you know yeah. uh, they actually a number, uh, number uh, a little while ago i got one of the usb3 drives one of, one of the first ones that came out and i was like well dude i don't have a usb3 port they're like well do you have an express card 34 port and i'm like yes i do on my macbook pro uh-huh. so uh, uh now, of course, then they ditched that and then they put in a stupid SD card slot, which to me was like a waste of <laughs> I would much rather prefer Express card, sure. which is still a viable technology. I have a couple of gizmos I can plug in there, but it was neat that, you know, I was able to do the review because I'm like, oh, well, I'll now I have a USB three port and Thunderbolt takes that one step further in that. Wow. I mean, look at all the ports you got there with all these docks uh, that 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 is incredibly cool. It's cool that you can explode. Uh, well, I- expand your Thunderbolt to all these other standards. It's like right. a you know super bus. Well, that's what it, it's a bus. It's it right. It it. I mean, it's a system bus. It's not just an expansion. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's, it, yeah. 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 I mean, if you know, if well, somebody like tells card, you Express Card, I think was yeah, same kind of thing. Mostly eSATA or some low level, you know, high speed communication bus, and right? Then you could plug whatever you want in it. Yep. So. uh Outstanding. Now, and you know, Sonnet, somebody in the chat room mentioned Sonnet, uh, and, and it's worth, it's worth, uh, mentioning them. They, they are very shortly coming out with a Thunderbolt dock. I believe it does Thunderbolt two, uh, and has a lot more stuff in it. I think it's even got some ESATA ports, um, in it. it it's going to be far more expensive than these, probably about double the price, but, um, but you know, I mean, you're getting a lot more with it. If somebody sells you, I think this is important, and we've said this before when we talked about Thunderbolt, but if if you buy a Thunderbolt disk drive from someone, uh, you know, whatever it is, be it a single drive, uh, I've got one from Buffalo that works great, um, but you could also get Thunderbolt dual drives, you know, in a, in a like a hardware raid kind of thing set up. If, if you buy one of those, the drive itself is not a Thunderbolt drive. What lives inside that box, you might have a Thunderbolt port on the, on the drive. That would, that's what would make it a quote unquote Thunderbolt drive, but it really is going to be an eSATA drive. Most likely with a, a Thunderbolt to eSATA bridge in it. And, and that's just how it works. Just, and it, you know, it's similar to just a USB three port, right? You're just plugging in 
e, e, uh, USB three or eSATA into the Thunderbolt bus, and then it goes from there. So, um, but it works. It's I, I, you know, I'm, I was really impressed, and I was I, I was so happy when I realized, oh, that's right. My, you know, because when my Ethernet port died, I'm thinking, or not died, but you know, crippled itself. I was thinking, crap. You know, I, I've got this machine now, but in order to fix the Ethernet port. I have to replace the motherboard unless I can somehow clean the port and bring it back to life. But assuming that's not possible, it's like it's the motherboard. And then it hit me when when Apple suggested it, it was like, oh, that's right. We have an expansion bus so I can issue the built in port and just expand. And it's cool. I, I'm you know, it's good. I don't know, man. I think you're being a big baby about the whole thing. About replacing my motherboard. I mean, dude. All right, so you go to system information, Ethernet cards. You look at the model of Ethernet transceiver that you have, which is just technically yeah. a Broadcom chip. It is. Yep. You desolder that baby. You resolder it. <laughs> yeah. You get you know another what? one. You resolder that because surface mount resoldering sure, is, is it's easy. trivial. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm going to have, I'll have, I, I was going to say I was going to have my son do it, but I'm going to have Hector do it because, you know, she's got a beak. <laughs> she's got a couple of talons. She can hold stuff together. It's no big deal. It's It's easy. Dude. So Dude, easy. Last I've seen anything you give uh, Hector doesn't fix things. Well, if I dealt, I've seen Hector destroys things. So, uh, yeah, she's Hector is our our parrot here at uh, TMO Towers East <laughs> Hector, Hector. But Hector has been a Mac user uh, longer than Mac Geek Cab has existed, <laughs> I believe, potentially. Well, definitely longer than TMO existed. Hector uh, started her life. Uh, well, actually, I don't know where she started her life, but her first um, her first station in life was at Ambrosia Software, and she was their mascot for years and years and years. And then um, through a, a, a fantastic series of events kicked off by you, my friend, uh, uh, honestly. And you're welcome. Uh, yeah, right. On Twitter, uh, you know, you, 140 characters can change a life. And uh, it certainly changed ours. And uh, for the better, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how Hector feels about that, but, uh, you know. But we have Hector now. So, well, I knew that because you're you are literally Animal House, dude. <laughs> and that I know you and uh, both you and and uh, and your wife there, uh, you know, uh, shelter uh, or adopt or temporarily adopt. Uh, what, what, what do they call that? Uh, uh, temporary. We you, foster. Foster. You foster. Uh, I guess, and I think you still do that, which is awesome. You foster animals. I think I just saw do. a picture. I think I think you have some uh, kittens that well, are we, maybe looking for a home. Well, yeah, we have. We very temporarily were acting as a halfway house for some feral cats that people brought into the mm -hmm. shelter. It, feral cats are not adoptable by by families, right? It, 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 oh. it just doesn't work. Right. So people brought in uh, four feral cats to the shelter where my, where, how are we here? Um, where my <laughs> wife volunteers and they needed someone to take these cats. Uh, either they spayed and neutered them, uh, which is good, obviously. Uh, but they needed someone to take these cats somewhere, you know, to their house and keep them in like a shelter, not in their house, but in a shelter for two or three days to show them that there's a home base but then open the door and just let them go live in the wild. And, uh, and so we have a setup here where we actually were quite able to do that. And we're happy to do that. Two of the cat, one of the cats left immediately. It, it broke out of the shelter. Um, you know, we put food in a litter box and some bedding and stuff in this little shelter that we have, which is actually the kid's old tree house. Um, but, uh, 
But, you know, it, it worked out fine, except this one cat left immediately. It was totally freaked out. And so, okay, it was fine. It was, you know, didn't need much time in the halfway house. It was ready. It moved on. It now lives off in the woods. Uh, the second one left yesterday. Uh, the third one left, has not left, and has no desire to leave. It it snuggles. It purrs. So that one, that one has to go to a, a regular home. We don't have room in the house for yet another cat. We've got lots of animals. But anyway, so Thunderbolt Docs. I don't know how we got here. If you want to follow Hector on Twitter, uh, you can. She, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes because everybody's parrot needs a Twitter account. And Hector, actually, she's got 730 followers right now. So not bad. uh, No, it's it's pretty good. (laughs) My wife always points out that Hector has more followers than she does. So. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I re- rewind a little bit here. Yeah. So the thing I mentioned, Can, Dave. So as long as we rewind back to the tech stuff and stay away from yeah, the pet no, stuff. All right, good. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's tech. <laughs> so, so when I was, you know, chastising you for for not wanting to resolder the chip, there, you may ask yourself, how do I even figure out what Ethernet transceiver sure. chip I have in my machine? And this is how you do this. So here's the secret. So if you go on your Mac to about this Mac, you will get a dialogue. You can then say more info you will get another dialogue and then you click on system report and that runs an application and then there's going to be various categories so in the hardware category the reason i knew or i could tell dave or dave can tell us but i can tell you right now that i have a broadcom 5701 ethernet transceiver how do i know this because i went into the hardware section then i clicked on ethernet cards and at least on my mac mini um I could derive this because I looked at the name of the KEXT, which is a kernel extension. And the name of the extension, so kernel extensions are software that link to hardware. Again, we're drilling down into geek land here, Dave, but that's what we do. So um, the name of the kernel extension is Apple BCM 5701Ethernet.KEXT. And as you probably guess, if you look up BCM 5701 on uh, using the Googles or something like that, you're going to go to the Broadcom site, which is a manufacturer of Ethernet and other wonderful chips. And that is a 10, 100, 1000 base T Ethernet controller with integrated transceiver. There you so, go. Just want to tell people about that. So, uh, you know, Apple doesn't rarely, I think, makes their own parts. They use other people's parts because that's what other people do. So uh, this is how you find out what they are. So still resoldering the chip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ridiculous. You, you came up with a much better solution. And actually, once I get a, a Thunderbolt-capable uh, machine, Dave, these docks sound awesome. Because that's been a, a, a thing that's been lacking, I think, in, in Apple laptops for, for a number of years. Mm. Some people have tried to address it. But docking has never been something that's really been integral to Apple portables. Right. And all of these are, I mean, these, it, it totally works and it's great for my iMac. Not only does it solve the the problem I have with the ethernet, but it gives me these USB three ports, which is really awesome, but they're all built to be used with a laptop. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. you get to your desk, you plug this thing in, you could have a monitor hanging off one of the Thunderbolt ports there, but you've also got your gigabit ethernet and your, your drives and all of that stuff. Uh, you could even have a you know a keyboard and a mouse hanging off, so you have one plug at, at your desk. You know the Thunderbolt cord. You plug it into your laptop, and you're done. So it it is cool. It's it's actually freaking awesome. It's exactly, I'm sure, what Apple had in mind when they when they baked Thunderbolt into this. You know, certainly at least initially. So 
Yeah. I hope so. Because that's always been my observation using PC laptops, uh, Dell and others. Yeah. They've always addressed the docking thing a lot better than Apple, in my humble opinion. But it sounds like Apple is now bouncing back or at least giving vendors the ability to offer the solution. Yes. Cool. Yeah. No, it's it's cool. I, I like it. So and I have tested each of these. The Again, CalDigit, Elgato and Belkin. I've tested each of them backwards and forwards. They all do Every speed wise, USB three was fine on these. I I obviously can't compare it on the same machine to the uh, you know a built in USB three port to tell you whether or not it's you know faster or slower uh, or if there's any you know overhead issues or anything. I I would well I'm not going to even make any guesses. It's way faster than USB two. These things actually run at USB three, and I'm able to get you know good throughput on them so uh a, a thunderbolt drive that i have i have this buffalo uh single drive th- i actually have a couple thunderbolt drives but i tested it with this buffalo one on usb2 obviously it maxed out at you know whatever 35 on uh, thunderbolt it hits about 100 uh and on usb3 it hits about 100 so uh no difference between thunderbolt and usb3 on on this particular drive which is a good sign so so there you go yeah it's fun stuff man um uh, I like I like being able to upgrade. I you know makes me it makes me embrace my geek roots. Oh, so it's good. It's fun. Yeah, um, you know I'm gonna I'm gonna take us on another little detour here, John. If if that's okay, can I? <laughs> I guess it's okay. Or tangent? <laughs> well, not really. Um, I had the opportunity on Wednesday to speak at Mac Tech, and it uh it now. There's there's a, I've talked about Mac Tech before, but I've talked about the Mac Tech conference, which is what happens in the fall, usually October or November and in or around Los Angeles. And that conference is has two tracks of content for one for developers and then one for what I'm going to call system administrators. You know, the, the people that are really doing some of the larger installations and that sort of thing. Um, I don't do either of those things, although I wind up getting a ton out of it. And I've talked about that. What they also do for the rest of the year, though, is they do what they call Mac Tech Boot Camp. Uh, there are three more of these, one in Washington in June, one in Chicago in July, San Francisco in August, and Toronto in September. Boot Camp is a bad name for this, uh, and but it's an awesome event. Half the people in the audience were Mac Geek Gab listeners, which was awesome. It was great to meet those of you that, that came up and said hi. I gave one of the sessions wow. of the day. I talked about PKI. But, but it speaks to something. Everybody should be there. Um, it, it's This event, Boot Camp is the wrong name because it gives, to me, it gives the impression that you would go there if you were starting out. Um, and, and nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, the, the folks that were there are people who are consultants and and have and some of them have been for 20 years. And and I'm not talking about people managing, you know, thousands of Macs on a network. I'm talking about people that, you know, like I used to it, it run their own shop or have a small shop uh, where they're out just helping people, small businesses, you know, uh, home users every day. And and, you know, again, the name boot camp, it turns people off, I think. Uh, because or or could turn people off or at least would turn people away or perhaps not attract people that would that would and should otherwise go um, because, you know, there's a lot of folks that are consultants that are happy in that role and have no desire to then go work somewhere where there's, you know, 500 max at some big institution or whatever. Uh, 
the stuff that they cover at this, I learned a ton of things. I'm going to, I'm going to run through kind of a list of notes that I made. Again, I went to this thing to speak. Um, I stayed all day and it's great. You know, Neil Tickton, he is the, um, the, the, the brains behind all of Mac tech. There are lots of people that are smarter technically than him, at least in terms of the knowledge they have. But Neil is Mr. Community. He knows how to build these kind of events and make it just feel like you're at camp. It's true. And so camp is absolutely the right word. It's fun. Everybody's all in it together. Um, You know, and, and so, and there's, there's time for coffee breaks and socializing and, and all of that stuff. And then of course the, you know, the sessions happen or the, the, yeah, the sessions happen. Uh, But it, you know, there are things that, that we can all learn here. Even, even if you have been a consultant for 20 something years, there's always something to learn. Even if it's learning a new way to explain something you already know, because as we all know, when you're trying to explain a technical concept that you understand to someone, sometimes you explain it perfectly and they look at you like you just spoke gibberish. So you start back at the beginning with yet another way and they look at you like you just spoke more gibberish. And so you try a third way. And sometimes it's the fifth way that finally makes them say, Oh, I know what you're saying. Perfect. That makes sense. Why didn't you say that the first time? Well, I didn't know. So, uh, you know, I, to me, it's Mac tech consultants camp. And again, there's four more happening the rest of this year. And then I'm, I'm sure they'll do more next year too. They, they kind of go all over the, uh, the country they they had this one in Boston, which is where I just was, where it was, where I just was. Yeah. That's the right word. Um, Denver, Austin, Atlanta, and Seattle were the uh, previous locations for this year. But, uh, running through a couple of the things that I learned. So here's some tips. John, I had no idea that rotational hard drive platters these days are mostly made of glass. Did you know that? Yes. I think metal was the uh, aluminum, yeah. I, I believe, was a traditional material. But yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah. Glass. Okay. Um, so yeah, I saw that where I, I guess people found that out because if you cracked open your hard drive and dropped it, uh, yeah. well, yeah, it would, yeah. it would shatter. Yeah. But I, I guess it's probably a more, I guess it's less expensive. And or or you can properties store dense spray. Yeah. Yeah, once you spray the magnetic coating on it, then uh, it really doesn't make a difference, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so there's that. Uh, also learned that you can't. Uh, there's no way on the Mac to zero erase an SSD. So, you've got a Mac with an SSD drive. You're getting rid of the drive or getting rid of the Mac, and you need to zero erase it. There is no way on the Mac to do that. Mm. It's true. The only thing I've read about that, so what Dave means by zero erase is to totally obliterate data on every cell in the drive. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought I saw some proposals where there could be a command. Now, you may have to run, uh, heaven forbid, a, a DOS utility. That's what but I'm saying. I thought, yeah. I thought there was a proposal to offer a command saying, okay, totally wipe this drive because the uh, the way SSDs work, doing a zero erase, like with this utility, uh, as far as I know, and I think you'd agree, won't do it right. because it won't reach all the cells. Well, yeah, because there's all the over-provisioned cells and all that stuff. Right, but right. I don't think anybody's... Uh, yeah, so, so I get what you're saying. Uh, yeah. On the Mac, no one has offered a zero erase utility. And, um, and, and then I, I have... And then I have uh, a couple of notes about Wi-Fi, which I'll just go through quickly and then and then we can discuss them, John. Um, five gigahertz uh, may the, the radios in most of the high end consumer based. And then, of course, all the enterprise based uh, five gigahertz Wi-Fi units. And this includes some of the, you know, the, the dual channel ones. The radios can typically all go 
from about four and a half up past six gigahertz. And the reason is the FCC may approve more spectrum for five gigahertz. So uh, and, and if they do, those units would then be firmware upgradable to support that. So that's good. Uh, number two, we talked about DFS. There's this this band in the middle of the five gigahertz spectrum that uh, is reserved or has to allow uh, local radar frequencies to kind of overstep it. And so a lot of vendors don't want to deal with getting DFS certification. Uh, it basically means in, it, in addition to just getting your radio certified, you then need to send it in for a second level of certification, which takes longer. So a lot of places block that out via firmware initially. And that's like channel 64 up to a hundred. I think don't quote me on that. You can, you can look it up. We'll put a link in the show notes, uh, but there's these channels in the middle that, that are unused. If, if your radio doesn't support DFS, a lot of vendors send their stuff in for that certification after they've shipped, which then means a subsequent firmware update could unlock that. For the most part, you're not going to run into any interference unless you live right near an airport uh, with um, with with DFS. So if you can use that channel in your in your routers uh, or those channels, uh, it can be helpful. Um, as far as 2.4 goes, uh, there was a lot of conversation about about uh, all of this, including some great data from the folks at Ruckus Networks, and they're they're like the masters um, at at Wi-Fi stuff. In fact, that's where Alf Watt works now is over at ruckus but um alf wasn't there there were there were other folks there but uh they reiterated always using channels one six and eleven and not the intermediate channels we've already had this discussion here it's the same advice that we gave uh because we got it from the experts but more just letting just letting you know that more experts have weighed in on this one six and eleven because the base stations will coordinate with each other if you put it in the middle instead of blocking one channel and having one channel block you uh you have two you, you know if you put it on three you've now got channels one and six uh competing with you and because you're on different channels the radios won't necessarily um uh work with each other to 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 deal with that so again one, six, and eleven on two point four are the channels to use. If uh, if you're doing that, uh, just find the one that works best for you. If you're in a congested area, and lastly, John, uh, Wi-Fi, and this kind of goes back to our discussion that led us to Dubuki. Remember? Uh, Thank you, because I was going to ask you, but yep, you why read my mind? Because I was I was wondering about this because uh, we we had talked about scanning Wi-Fi networks and. Uh, after we did that, Dave, I went to my local library mm. and brought my MacBook Pro 2008 to my local library, which has Cisco, multiple Cisco um, access points, I believe only on 2.4. And I fired up because I, I know I did this before and I wanted to make sure my memory wasn't failing me. And it didn't. And then I was sitting there, Dave. And so I fired up Wireshark for about five minutes and then took the packet capture, which is put in a PCAP, uh, NPCAP type of file. And sure enough, I was seeing traffic that was neither sent by me or received by me. So I'm like, okay, I remember correctly. You you can do this, but why, Dave? Yeah, yeah. Um, so Wi-Fi is built as a, a essentially like a hub-based technology, meaning everybody gets everything. But as as we noticed, John, that's not always true. And so I asked one of the ex experts, this is the beauty of going to something like this. Uh, and they said, oh, yeah, 
Exactly. So some vendors are moving to a more switch-based paradigm. It's not really... So the difference between a hub and a switch uh, on a physical network is that you plug when you plug into a hub, you see the traffic meant for everyone. Whereas if you plug into a switch... Uh, the switch is smart enough and actually only directs the traffic for you to your segment of the switch, uh, which makes things more efficient. Wi-Fi, it, it, and, and there was actually some discussion about the origins of the phrase or the, the name Wi-Fi. It, it, it doesn't mean anything. It's not short for anything. It just right. means wireless. But really, it's physical Ethernet over wireless, which which is an oxymoron. But that's how the technology works. Okay, it, there's nothing different about it except we've added this wireless component on top of all the other technology that exists for physical Ethernet. So in this sense, it is hub based, but some manufacturers are carving out traffic and only sending traffic for that one device to that device. And it mm. it, it it's. <laughs> Whether it's actually going to help with congestion or not is tough to say, but at the very least, it keeps the device from having to wake up and and see it. So it might be kind of helpful with battery life. I, I you know, there was there was a lot of sort of nebulous discussion about what benefits this brings. Uh, obviously, it brings some security benefits, as as you saw, John, right, you know, not being right. able to see the traffic you you uh, that wasn't intended for you. Uh, so there's there's some benefits and there is some discussion down the road. Um, of of it actually becoming more truly more switch based, but but we're not quite there yet. So, uh, so there you go. So that's 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 just that's a smattering. No, that's very interesting because you know by its nature, Dave, radio is. If, if you you know go to the hub paradigm, mm. radio is a broadcast technology. That, there, that's right. Well, though you know, I'll step back because I think you 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 address this. Uh, you, you and I have talked about this in the past. I think there's uh, this beaming technology where you can beam kind forming. of yeah. beam forming where you can somewhat direct RF traffic. That's right. Well, what it'll and do. And maybe that's where, where the, this is going is that, all right, so I know who's receiving the traffic. I'll just use this beam that's to right. send it to that person and not blast it out to everybody. That's right. Maybe, maybe that's the direction the Wi-Fi industry is taking. Yeah. It, no, it's right. It, I mean, there's, you know, it, that, that's where we're going with this. So I just again, that's just a smattering of kind of the notes that I took sitting in my chair after I I had the benefit of uh, of giving the very first session of the day, which um, which is always awesome, because then I can like chill out and actually listen as opposed to, you know, thinking about, hey, what am I going to say? My thing. I mean, I knew what I was going to say. I was actually well prepared. I, I kicked butt at it. If I uh, if I can pat myself on the back. Sweet. Yeah. But um, it was good stuff. I actually met. Um, I'll, I'll say uh, hello very quickly to I met. This week, one pair ish at uh, at at the at the event, uh, Mac Tech event, and then one actually just this afternoon. But I know there's a lot of uh, parent child uh, pairs that listen to our show here, John. Um, we got an email from from Jake, who I believe is in fifth grade, sharing a story that we'll <laughs> that we'll share on a future show. But I met his dad um, at the event. And uh, and actually wrote a little note for Jake, so which was awesome. So hi Jake and hi Mike. And then also today, waiting in line in in town here for a high school musical production of uh, of Oliver, uh, ran into Hannah and Harry, who uh, are also both listeners. Um, so uh, I, I just think it's cool when when parents and their kids are able to find something, and uh, it's even cooler when it's this. So 
hello to uh, to Hannah and Harry as well. So there you go. All right, John, I'm, nice. I'm good derailing us today. That's that's all I got. Um, I want to wrap that up by saying go. That when I did capture this traffic, Dave, what warmed my heart and to just remind people, especially when you're a public Wi-Fi. So most of this traffic that I captured, none of it I did anything evil with. You can trust me on this. So I'm one of the good guys. <laughs> right. <laughs> the uh, majority of the traffic was uh, classified. So the thing is, Wireshark, when you capture traffic, will classify the type of packet. And most of the traffic that I saw was classified as TLS, I think, V1, yep. which means the person was using either a VPN or SSL. And that's a good thing. Yes. Yes. Right. Right. So we, 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 we couldn't, you know, we'll talk about, I don't think we'll get to it. We have a VPN question here, but the thing is, whenever you're on a public Wi-Fi, either use something like Cloak, which is, you know, for the Mac and iOS, or use OpenVPN or whatever sort of VPN technology, because people like me and Dave and others with uh, less honorable intent may be able to see your traffic. So, so I saw a lot of that and that, that, that made me happy. That's good. That there was encrypted traffic on the network. So somebody does suggest a utility called Boot and Nuke, and we'll put a link for that in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, Big That's T, nice. Big T in the chat room uh, <laughs> suggested suggests Boot and Nuke. D-B-A-N dot org uh, is where it's from. And they say that it, it, it will work on the Mac. In fact, uh, we'll also put a link. Thank you to Big T for uh, a YouTube video that shows it working on the Mac. And ostensibly that might uh make a bootable way it, it, you can erase an ssd with it sorry that that's what it'll do so we'll see your mileage may vary but at least maybe there's something so thanks big t that's awesome john i'm going to talk about our second sponsor while we're here and and then uh and then i want to get into some some questions <laughs> yeah. if, if that's okay all right good. if we have time i know well we've had a it's it, you know I, I, I've, I've enjoyed our conversation so far i think most have yeah no this has been good um our second sponsor is Squarespace, squarespace.com slash MGG. If you have a website that you want to get up online quickly, easily, and very flexibly, Squarespace is the place to check out. Uh, and if you use a coupon code MGG for your purchase there, you'll actually uh, save 10%. So that's, uh, that's their gift to you via us is, is the right way to put that. But um, what Squarespace lets you do is... They host your website. They let you build your website right in the browser. And the cool part is once you've built it, you know, editing a website in the, on the web actually makes a whole lot of sense because um, you can do it's what we do at, at TMO. Right. I mean, we, we edit all our content right there in a browser, kind of in the back end. What's cool with with Squarespace is you can take a uh, if you have one template, you know, for your site and you've customized it and you say, you know what? I liked that. That was good. They have awesome templates. They all work with mobile. It's just like automatic. But, you know, I want to give my my blog a, a fresh look. You change the look of your blog using another one of Squarespace's templates, and immediately your whole website looks like this new template. Even the old content that you published, you know, three weeks ago, originally it was published in the template that existed for you at the time. But when you make this change, boom. It changes everything, whole website. You, you put new images in or just change it wholesale. It all just works. And uh, you can add a storefront to it. You can take credit cards. You don't need a merchant account. 
they just, it's magic how, I mean, it's not magic, of course, but they make it feel like magic because it's just so easy to do. Um, and it starts at like, you know, eight ninety five or eight bucks a month. Sorry. It's seven ninety five, eight bucks a month. Uh, you just go and, uh, and start building. In fact, you start building before you, before long before you pay them and long before you even tell them your name, you just go to squarespace.com slash MGG, start creating, pick a template, start putting your content in and then out it goes. Uh, it's awesome. They, they've really made it simple. I've used it for a lot of different projects. I have my own personal Dave, the nerd blog over there and it's nice. You know, I, I used to have it in WordPress, which is fine, but, uh, but this just makes it so much easier. You know, there's just a lot less techie geeky stuff that I have to do. But if I want to, I can, I can drop HTML in there if I want, or I can never see the HTML or anything like that. So check it out. Squarespace.com slash MGG. And then remember MGG is your coupon code. Uh, when you do make your purchase, you get a two week free trial. Uh, so you don't need to buy anything right away, but when you do make your purchase, MGG gets you 10% off whatever you choose to buy. So there you go. That's uh that's Squarespace. All right, John, we got to get to some of these questions because they're not going to answer themselves. That's uh, that's for darn sure. <sighs> All right, let's go to uh, let's start with Michael, because Michael actually asked a question that that I believe everyone listening here at least might care about because it's about podcasts. Michael says, I subscribe to a lot of podcasts, more than 40. I like to download them to my iPod and decide which ones I want to listen to, depending on my mood. But I like to have them all accessible. He says, of course, Matt Geekab is his favorite. So here comes another new version of iTunes, and I swear they're just trying to make it impossible to navigate the podcast. I just want to refresh them on my own and delete them myself in my iTunes and then sync them with my iPhone and iPod from my computer. But it seems like those options are becoming really difficult or impossible. I would like to have them on my phone and my iPod and have them sync directly, but no, it keeps downloading duplicates and things I've deleted. So I delete again, but when I try to sync, it puts it back. Yada, yada, yada. It says, I understand Apple is trying to concentrate more on streaming content, but fish shake Apple iTunes. Do you hate podcasts and music now? Steve Jobs loved music in iTunes, and I believe this would make him sad. I, you know, I'm with you, Michael. Uh, it, it's, I, I'm not, I, when podcasts started, they were without question a pet project of uh, of Steve's, right? It, this was something he really kind of pushed into iTunes, but it, it gets weird attention from Apple. It, it, it's clearly not lost, right? They're still doing things. In fact, the latest iTunes update, aside from the disastrous permissions thing, uh, the latest iTunes update really um, was built at enhancing the and the podcast functionality now enhancing is you know uh something that lives only in the eye of the beholder but uh i've given up on itunes for managing my podcasts is where i'm trying to go with this i like downcast downcastapp.com they have a mac version in addition to an ios version and you can sync between the two you can customize each show to your heart's content just like you could you know 3 years ago 4 years ago 5 years ago on itunes it works uh, and you can sync it all back and forth. And I, it just, like I said, it just works. So check out downcast. Uh, other people also like Instacast. I just prefer downcast UI, but, but there are plenty of uh, people who, uh, who love Instacast, many of whom I respect greatly. So it's, it's a personal preference at that point. 
like I said, I like the UI of Downcast. So uh, check it out. We'll put a link to uh, to both in the show notes. But that that's what I use Downcast, and it uh, you know I don't have to deal with the iTunes silliness anymore, and it's which is too bad, but it's the way it is. How about you, John? You, you don't. It is. I'm I'm looking right now, and the thing is, Dave. I think my my strategy of being minimalist here is probably worked out for me because I'm looking right now. So the thing is. I manage my podcast on a single machine on my MacBook Pro using iTunes. That's cool. But now I'm looking here. So I'm right now, Dave, looking on my iPhone. Yeah. The podcasts and the lists of podcasts that are here are different. Yeah. That's annoying. It's like, what? So like right now, Dave, I'm looking and it shows that episode 501 is the most recent episode in our enhanced feed, which is clearly not the case. Not true. Whereas on iTunes on MacBook Pro. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, if anything, don't trust, you know, especially cross device. I, I would say Apple has at this point. Sorry, our friends at Apple, they've kind of failed yeah. in fulfilling the, the vision of syncing your podcasts among multiple devices. My strategy, like I mentioned, is I have it all on one machine. And if I do need to sync it to a device, I, I do it manually. And that that works for me. But anything beyond that, um, like you said, Dave, I I'd, I'd look at. Other- uh Oh, did I lose you, John? <laughs> Speaking of podcast trouble. All right, let me see if I can get John back. Hang on. All right, John, you're back. Uh, that'll teach you to curse Apple, I suppose. Teach us both. <laughs> it was either Apple or the NSA. I don't, I don't know. That's right. Or somebody else. So I, I got, uh, I vented. Yes. Right? You you got that. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, we so, got it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good. All right. I, I do want to point out a uh, another uh, contender here for uh, for for uh, podcast apps is called Castro C A S T R O dot F M is the URL. And it's a very smooth interface. Uh, they just did some pretty significant updates to it. Uh, very simple, uh, but works really, really well. So, uh, so we'll put a link to Castro in the show notes as well. So it's yet another option because we certainly need them. So there you go. All right, John, you want to take us to Larry, please? I'm going to take you to Larry. Thanks. So another fish shake at Apple, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> so Larry wrote in and said, John, I just started using Aperture. I've been downloading my pictures, raw and JPEG. I also took a few videos with my new camera, a Lumix FZ or Z uh, 200. But they don't show up in Aperture. I assume that's normal, question mark. I also download the card to my iPad. No videos there either. What happened to them and where should I download them to? All right. So I got I dug into this and the thing is I also have a Lumix, Dave. So I, I'm somewhat qualified to talk about this here. Then talk. <laughs> and the thing is, I think the problem with what Larry is doing is Larry is trying to use the import feature from within aperture. Cause I have never run into the problem that he has run into. Okay. And he sent me screenshots showing that so when you're in aperture, there is on the top, a little button that says import. And then you can choose to try to import from your memory card or connected 
audio or video device. And as far as I can tell, it just isn't smart enough to pull the data out of certain devices, Dave. Okay. Okay. Um, Yeah, that makes sense. Sure. Well, the thing is, is uh, a lot of times when you hook up a video card, various utilities like Dropbox and uh, Aperture and iPhoto, they'll all say, hey, I think you're a video or, or photo card. You want me to import stuff, but I think the problem is Aperture, in my humble opinion, because it's kind of long in the tooth and Apple has not really upgraded it majorly in ages. Um, sometimes you have to do things manually or you have to, as we pointed out in the past, peel the onion. Now, sure. how do you do this with a memory card and a Lumix camera? Now, at least on the Lumix camera, Dave, what happens is that the way it stores things is at the top level, so if you put it into your your Mac, uh, you will see a folder, and typically, uh, at least on the Lumix cameras, it's called DCIM. So if you click on that folder, and this is how I import my stuff. So I'll click on my DCIM folder. Then below that, you will see another folder. Like in this case, I'm looking right now, and uh, sounds like you're playing with your, your <laughs> mic there, Dave. <laughs> um... Uh, Then I'll see a folder called 114 underscore Pana because it's a Panasonic camera, even though it's Lumix. And then you will see a list of JPEGs uh, or RAWs. And what I do is I will highlight the ones that I want to import because typically I don't always delete pictures immediately from my SD cards. So what I do is highlight all of them and then um, I will drag them to the aperture icon that I have in my dock. And then what happens is um, when Aperture receives new input, it will create a new project with all of that input. Now, the thing is with movies, it's a little different. And, and this worked for me. So one thing that I found is that, so at least the way uh, uh, Lumix, uh, the Lumix devices uh, do it, it, it gets kind of wacky. And I think this is why Aperture couldn't find it when the, when the Aperture... Uh, import feature was used in that um, so instead of the DCIM folder, what you will then see is a private folder. Then underneath that, you will see something called AVCHD. Okay. And this is where it gets kind of wacky. Now, in my case, when I drag that folder over manually, that then created a AVCHD folder or project with an aperture. And then I could see the movies that were stored in that folder. Um, if you want to, and the, this this may be the better solution here, because then you're going to create this folder and, and you're not going to know, you know, it's all, all going to be the same folder name. But what I found is that if you go to the ADCHD package, so it's a package. So how do you open a package, you may ask? Well, you right click on it and you see open package. And at least on the Lumix card, uh, you will then see another package called BD. MV. Open that one, then you're going to see another folder called stream. And within that, you're going to see a bunch of folders uh, or, or a bunch of files with a suffix of MTS. Those are the movie files. So that would be my recommendation on how Sweet. to pull that stuff in Aperture because Aperture will. Uh, Aperture can work with many forms of video. And uh, the, the other thing I pointed them at 
was, um, and we'll put in the lovingly handcrafted show notes, but Aperture, Aperture can absolutely handle many forms of video here. And I, I did send to him and yeah, we'll, we'll put in the notes here, but there actually is online a support chapter in the Aperture documentation saying, hey, how do I deal with a video in Aperture? Though if you're doing video work, I, I don't know if Aperture is necessarily your best solution. <laughs> For videos that you, well, well, I don't know. I, honestly, I haven't done a lot of video work uh, in Aperture. It, it can certainly play them and, and store them. Uh, I, I don't know how much beyond that it can do. Sure. Yeah. Cool. All right. All right. We got a question from Fletch. How are we doing on time here? We got, uh, oh yeah, we got, we got a little bit of time. Let's see. We will do, uh, we will do Fletch and then. Oh, shoot. I don't know what we'll do. We've got... Uh, probably do Bob f- is a good quickie. It won't be as fast as you Maybe. think it is. But, but yeah, we'll no, do Fletch we'll. and Bob. Okay. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. Actually, we can, we, if, we, if we focus, we can do Bob uh, quickly. But Fletch good. asks, uh, My wife has been using her MacBook Pro for over a year now and finally talked me into switching to an iMac from my Windows laptop. All is well and good, and I'm loving my new machine. That's awesome to hear. It's uh, we don't get as many switchers these days uh, as we did, say, you know, five or six years ago when when that was all the rage. So glad to have you, Fletch. Awesome. He says, I do have a question. My wife and I make use of voluminous amounts of storage between us. We probably have three terabytes of data comprised of media and data files for business and personal uses. We both keep our files on external drives, but we would like to consolidate all the data into one or two, if needed, network drives. Were I in Windows land, that would involve a network file server. What is the best way to accomplish this using Mac-specific hardware? Okay, so there's a lot of answers here, right? I mean, it's a pretty wide open field. Uh, you could certainly hang those drive, that, that drive or drives, uh, off of your iMac uh, and, and then go into system preferences, sharing, file sharing, and add those disks or even just subfolders of those disks as shared folders. Okay. Uh, that would work very similar to what you would do on windows, uh, in terms of, you know, sharing files and, and hopefully work even more easily. Uh, what I would say is even if your wife isn't going to log into your iMac directly, uh, uh, you know, uh, in terms of a user account, create her a user account and then assign her permissions to that so that she can log in from across the network that way. And, and that way you don't have to share logins and, and, and do that sort of thing. So that's that's uh, that's that's an easy way to do it. It does require um, your iMac being on, although if you have some type of Apple network hardware uh, and specifically that is an Apple router, so an airport extreme or a time capsule or an Apple TV, then you get the added benefit of some magic functionality. If your iMac goes to sleep, it will still appear as though it is on and accessible uh, to other Macs on the network. And when, say, your wife tries to access your sleeping iMac for access to these files, the other Apple hardware, the, the Apple TV or your Apple router, will wake up that iMac magically. And uh, and then give your wife access to the hardware. So it's as though there's it's as though it's on all the time, even though you let it sleep. So that that is one uh, certainly feasible way of of doing this. And it works quite well. However, if you want to take it uh, one step beyond and create or or get a separate box 
to do this that doesn't require your iMac to be on or even uh, in the house, uh, then you want some kind of network drive. There's all kinds of options here. And we talk a lot about Synology disk stations and they do that. Uh, you can start with one of those for 160 bucks, right? So, uh, that'll, that'll do it with, with uh, two bays. So that's certainly possible. And you get all the great Synology features uh, even in there. A Drobo 5N, certainly, you know, jumping up the, the price scale, but, but that device would do this type of thing. And it's very easy to use and manage, um, you know, a time capsule, uh, would do this hanging a USB disc off of your airport extreme would do this. Uh, you might have a different type of router that, that also has the ability to hang a USB drive off of it. There's all kinds of different options. Uh, but, but that's, that's kind of how, uh, that's how we do it here in, in Mac land is, uh, and, and perhaps even whatever you would have used in, in the windows world would also work with, uh, you know, with your Mac, your Mac can support all the SMB protocols that, that windows servers use and, and all of that. So, um, it, it should just work for you. So that's all I got on that one, John, you have any, anything to add? Mm, I think that covers it. All right, sweet. Take us to Bob. All right. So Bob had a question, which uh, reminded me of a, a feature that not many will be aware of, but once you hear this, you will be. So Bob writes in and says, um, is there an Apple script or automator or application that will automatically connect to the exchange server drives when I'm in the all windows office? Currently I use the connect to server command under the finders go menu. So that's certainly a way to do it, but yeah, it's annoying. So my assumption was he always needs this drive in certain situations. Sure. So here's one thing which tickled me, Dave, because um, it's something that I don't think a lot of people realize is, is some of the, the elegance and power buried in OS X. So my response was as follows. If you always need this to happen on startup, that being mounting that drive, if you go to system preferences, users and groups, login items. Now, the thing is most people who have uh, dabbled in log login items, see applications there. Well, guess what? You can't, you can put things other than applications in there, Dave. That's right. You can also put a network volume in there. So one thing he could do is um, take the network volume. Once it's mounted, drag that into the login items and it's going to show it not as, uh, so login on shows things of type. And I think normally it shows if you have an application, it's of type duh, application. But if you drag a network volume, it'll show it as a type volume. And then what will happen is when you restart your machine, it will, um, it'll prompt you, which uh, of course, uh, once it prompts you, I think you can say save in my keychain, and then it won't prompt you anymore for, for the username and password yeah, right. to mount that volume. That's right. So once you do that, uh, assuming that it's a volume that you always want to mount. And I don't know if that's a safe assumption. Uh, in, in this case, I think if, if he wasn't on the office network and restarted the machine, it would try to mount it, wouldn't find it and would say, yeah, I, I can't find it. It'll, so it'll give you a you, failure. Yeah. Yeah. So if you can put up with that minor annoyance, that may be one solution, but there's another solution. So he also asked, well, how about automator? Well, there we go. Well, automator, um, has a way to do this in that you have to 
you have to uh, stitch together two automator actions. So you go on automator, you create either workflow or an application, probably an application. Um, and then you, uh, the, they're in the file and folders category. And the first one that you want to pick is called get specified servers. And then the second one you want to get is you want to select is called connect to servers. And if you stitch those together, that will do the same thing for you. So one is automatic. One is somewhat manual. And actually you could probably take that automator action if it's an application and put it in your login items. If you're want to kind of <laughs> yeah. reinvent the wheel. No, that's, but, that would totally uh, work. Yeah. To me, those are the two, but then Dave, you had a yet another, uh, perhaps geekier and perhaps more flexible solution. Yeah. So I have a need, uh, to have my, to tie the last two questions together here to have my network, some volumes that are on my NAS drive on my Synology mounted all the time. I have my, um, uh, my music library is cloned to my disk station uh, every day. So I like to make sure that that's mounted so that the clone operation just works. And then also my movies library is on my disk station. And then I have kind of a general folder of just data out there, some installers, some data that my wife and I share that kind of thing. And I like to have all three of those volumes mounted all the time. Uh, I can, I, I can and do actually do the trick you talked about with putting them in login items so that when my Mac starts up, it pulls them up. However, when my Mac goes to sleep, sometimes, in fact, most times when it wakes up, it does not remount those volumes. That bothers me because uh, I'll go to do something and use them. And it's like, oh, crap, I got to go back out to the finder and and mount them. And I save the password because I'm local to my office here and I'm not worried about that. But it, I just have to jump through the hoops. So I use something called control planes uh, at controlplaneapp.com. And this is it's a it's a funky piece of software. Uh, when you first use it, it's going to seem a little confusing, but it's really not that bad. The idea behind control plane is you set up um, rules and based on those rules, it performs actions. So for me, I've set up a rule or a context for when my Mac wakes up, uh, then it performs these actions and the actions are mount these three volumes uh, and it works out great. Every time my Mac wakes up, control plane realizes, hey, I just woke up. What do I do when I wake up? I go mount those three volumes. So that's the criteria I use to mount volumes. But Bob, if uh, you know, if these are things only at the office, then you could there's all kinds of things that you can use as your criteria to then define a uh, context. Right. So uh, you could have a context of home and a context of office. And and you can use things like the visibility of a printer or nearby wireless uh, network names. It doesn't have to be the one you're con you're connecting to. Uh, you can use it, uh, you know, an IP range, all kinds of little things. And you can put multiple rules together. So you say, OK, well, if if these three conditions are true, then I'm darn certain I'm in the office at that point. Go and mount this drive and uh, and it'll do it. So. It works really well. Like I said, it's it, you, you got to kind of fight with it a little bit until you really understand it, it'll it's one of those things that'll click as you just sort of mess with it. You'd be like, oh, I see the path I have to walk here. And then uh, then it all makes sense. Um, so it's it's not the most intuitive thing in the world is, is what I'm trying to say. But if you just, you know, know that it's possible, you will get this to work. And they've got some examples on the website and all that. So check out control plane app that, that will, that combined with John's tip of putting it in your login items will probably solve this problem. And then some for you. 
It's fun. I got one left, John, unless, unless we have more on Bob here. No, we're good. I, I think we, uh, we dealt all the cards we can on that one. We did. Yeah, no, it's good stuff. It's fun. All right. One last uh, little thing here. Howard writes, he says, I have some audio recordings that are hard to hear. There's not a lot of background noise. It's just that the volume was too low and it was recorded. What software would be the best to use to try and amplify the recording? All right. So what you want to do is normalize the volume. And what it means to normalize is to bring the level up so that the peaks are all at a higher level. Uh, And you can do this to the audio file itself so that when you play it right after playing something else, your volume is consistent. You don't need to crank the volume and worry about riding that along. Uh, There's a lot of software out there that'll let you normalize things, but audacity is a piece of free software that will do this. And then some, in fact, audacity, if you want to do any kind of audio editing, it's awesome. It's free and very, very full featured. And you can do all kinds of crazy stuff. Normalization is, is a fairly simple process with audacity. You just open it up, open the file in there and then, uh, and then go to the, I believe it's in the effects menu and you just choose normalize. You're going to normalize. You can choose when you do this, what level you want to normalize to. I don't recommend normalizing all the way up to zero DB. I recommend normalizing to negative three DB, maybe even negative six. It just keeps things from overdriving, but, um, but you certainly can normalize to zero. If you find that that's, that's better. You could even normalize to plus three DB, but, uh, but you know, going to negative three or negative six is probably going to work. However, if that doesn't do it, it's possible that if you've got one peak in the recording, one very loud spot, uh, it's going to normalize to that. It's going to set that at negative three and bring the level either up or down uh, of the whole recording uniformly so that that peak, the loudest peak is at negative three. That's probably going to work for you. But if it doesn't, uh, then what you need to do is something a little more, um, a little more in depth. You need to do some compression, uh, which not, we're not talking about, uh, data compression where we're taking the size of something and shrinking it down. What we're doing is compressing the dynamic range of it. So if you have a very loud peak and very soft spots, the problem is you can only turn it up as loud as the loudest peak will let you before it distorts, which may leave the soft spots very soft. So uh, compression lets you compress the dynamic range of that, bringing the s- loud peaks down so that the soft stuff is soft. In fact, I'll give a quick, demonstration because john we have compression on our individual vocals here as we uh, talk so i can be this close to the mic where i'm real close and i'm not much louder than i am when i'm say you know a foot away from the mic and that's because when i'm real close the compressor pulls my level out but if i turn off the compressor i'm probably going to be okay so there i am and now when i get further away i get really soft but I put the compressor in and now everything's good. Compressor. There is a compressor in audacity and you can play with that. Uh, There's also a piece of software that has a lot of this stuff all built in and it does it all simultaneously. It's called levelator. Uh, Depending on the source, it may way overdo it and completely ruin your recording. Well, it won't ruin it. It creates a copy. Uh, you can only put wave or AIFF files. in. so if it's an MP3, it's not going to work. 
But uh, we'll, we'll put a link to Level Later in the show notes, too. So you can check out either one of those yeah. and uh, and see which one works for you. Let me ask you. This. So I've used Levelator. Actually, I've been asked to do production a couple mm-hmm. times on a, a Mac Roundtable and some of the other podcasts. When yeah. Nobody else was able to do it. So, sure. yeah, so it's, it's a wonderful tool. And the it, price is right. It it's can free. be right. It is free. Yeah, yeah, it can be a wonderful tool. It does normalization oh, okay. and compression and all kinds of stuff. Right. Let me ask you this, though. What aspect of the process? So the thing is, the question that I heard is my audio is too soft. Now, what exactly in the process that you described prevents? Because the thing is, when you increase the audio, there's also going to be noise and other undesirable things. What what makes it so that you won't get more, you know, like, or, yeah, or what makes it so that you won't get more noise in addition to more audio right to me if you just turn up a volume knob in addition to getting more audio you're going to get more of stuff you may not want so so what in the process you described is is eliminating that the stuff you don't want excellent question so the first step just using audacity to normalize will not will bring everything up including any noise so if you have a significant amount of noise right Level later, it's kind of a black box because there's no tweaks, right? You take a file, you put it into it. It does what it wants to do to it, and it spits out the result. For a podcast like this, we always run through level later, and it does a great job of balancing our levels in case I've got the mixer a little bit weird or whatever, John, right? Um, we, But you and I also use noise gates, right? Right now, okay. there's no signal coming from you whatsoever. And it's not because there's no signal in your room or anything. It's that I set a noise gate. And what a noise gate does is it only allows sound through when the sound is louder than a given level. I, I use an expander. It's a kind of a fancy noise gate. But it, 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 that's what okay. it does. And so it's a pre-process thing. Yes. So you're, you're doing it before... The final audio stream is is delivered. I'm doing it on on input. I have a both. Or we're of doing our, it now. Yeah. So the thing is, it's it's immediately getting rid of noise and other things we don't want. Right. In fact, you might remember when I was in a hotel room once. I used a software noise gate. Here, I'm using an outboard noise gate, so I can actually look at it and see it. But I used a software noise gate and didn't realize that I had it set too high so the beginnings and ends of all of our sentences were being cut off and it was painful for our poor listeners to uh to deal with that but but because i did it on the recording i could not go back that that data was just gone right however audacity has a noise gate function also so what you if you if you normalize it up and realize whoa i don't want that then you could run a noise gate on it and find that level of where the background noise isn't or is, you know, and the, the content isn't, and then kind of tweak the noise gate. So it's silent. In fact, let me, um, I don't know how well you're going to hear this, but, but I'm going to just turn the noise gate down on me. So now do you hear kind of the background humming when I'm silent? Right. Let me, uh, let me turn this up and, and you'll hear it no. go away. If you're listening on headphones, you just heard the noise drop. And that was as I brought the noise gate in and that's what we do. And I have one on your channel too, John, just, just to keep it. Yeah. So you'll hear it. I I guarantee you'll hear it on the out, on the, uh, on the out, but Skype does some weird things between us, John, but, uh, but you'll hear it when you, when you, you know, when you guys play it back. Okay. Yeah. 
what we need when, when we demonstrate a noise gate, Dave, we absolutely need Hector to be part of this. I would say put Hector <laughs> well, but maybe you know, 10 that, or 20 feet away from... <laughs> but that's not going to do it, right? Because if, if she's making noise that's higher than the level I have the gate set to, then oh. it's going to cut. It's going to come through, right? I mean, you know, I, I have a gate. I can go way over here and clap my hands. But you're not hearing anything in the middle. Now, if I kill the gate and I do this... You know, you hear, you kind of hear the echo of the room. So yeah, that's why we I use did. noise gate. Ah. ah, right. So. so the noise gate is, it's cool. It sounds like it's frequency. No, it's amplitude. amplitude. It's amplitude. It based. is amplitude. Yes. Yeah. Oh. yeah. The reverb of, of my clapping in the room here. First of all, the studio is pretty dead, but um, the reverb of my clapping is, is much softer uh, amplitude than, than the actual clap. So. You hear the clap and then the gate closes is what happens. Right. Yeah. Right. It's cool. Uh, you know, it's geeky really? audio stuff, but it's, uh, it's what well, we do. It's part of the secret of why we make this show sound as good as we do. Because when I'm talking, there's no noise coming from your end. Even if you've got a fan in the background, we hear it when you talk, but not when I talk and mm -hmm. vice versa. When you're talking, I'm silent, truly silent. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. by we, you mean you, because I just, have the dulcet tones that's right the pipes or at least i like to think so <laughs> that's right that's how we do it well i think we both do you know in our if, own way if I, if I didn't turn if if i wasn't a software engineer some people have suggested i could have been a radio broadcaster you could do voiceover work you know you could read uh, audiobooks i know uh, we have some listeners that do that 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 do you know uh professional oh, I know voice we have work. some that do voiceovers yes yeah. um you know, I honestly find that I find developing software much more stimulating than there you go talking. You got to do you got to do what I works find it for you. Boring. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. All right. Feedback at macgeekab.com is the address that you can send your comments, questions. Send in your cool stuff. Found we're doing that show on Friday because I got to fly to WWDC on on Sunday the first. So we're we're going to do Sweet. the first the first show of June is actually going to happen on Friday May thirtieth is how that's going to work out. Not that you care. It's just a show on Friday. Who cares? Who cares right. what the month and if is? You, and if you didn't hear, Dave, maybe there was a noise gate or a compressor or some other obscure audio technology. But what he said is you should send an email to feedback at macgeekab.com. That's feedback at macgeekab.com unless. You are someone who already does or starts supporting us directly using our premium program. Our premium program we put into place uh, so that because because frankly, because you asked uh, several, many of you, hundreds of you, uh, thousands at this point, perhaps uh, asked for ways to support us directly. Uh, you, you patronize our sponsors, which is fantastic. I mean, it, it, that that's truly awesome. But you wanted to do more. You wanted to contribute directly to what it takes to produce the show, which includes John and I paying our mortgages and all of that good stuff. And uh, and so we did. We created the premium program, and it's a way for you to contribute directly to us. And then uh, once a year or so, we have a little program for those of you that have contributed beyond a uh, beyond the hundred dollar amount uh, in that past year. We send out a little gift, and we're putting together some mugs right now that we can uh, that we can ship off to and, to those of you shortly. Oh, yeah. And I want to mention, Dave. Uh, but one of the questions that I actually helped someone with, he said, "You know what? Uh, uh, so the thing is, we have options. You can do a recurring subscription, mm -hmm. or you can do a one-time donation. That's right." He was like, "You know what? Because he helped me so much with then, 
you know, I'm not at the point where I'm willing to do this, but I'd like to do it one time. So you, when you click on the button to contribute, you can either do a subscription or a one-time contribution. That's right. So that's right. It flexible for you. MacGeekGab.com is where you find out about that. One of the additional benefits you get from being a, uh, a premium contributor is premium at MacGeekGab.com, which is an address that uh, I really focus on. I make sure that that stuff gets answered uh, in a priority. We do still try to answer it and, and most of the time succeed, I will say. Uh, every question that comes in via any channel. So, uh, but the premium stuff, we, we prioritize. So, uh, just as our, our way of, you know, saying thanks. So, uh, the feedback does get full, though. It does. Oops. 206-666-GEEK <laughs> is the number any of you can call. And John Geek is? 4,335? That's right. Something like that. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can find us on Twitter. Twitter.com slash MacGeekGab is the show. Uh, slash John F. Braun is him. Dave Hamilton is me. Pilot Pete's the guy that uh, couldn't make it today. And, of course, Mac Observer is where all the headlines are. I'd like to thank Michael Johnston from We Have Communicators uh, and also GetAppler.com. He, for years now, a- almost nine years, right? I mean, I think he started right at the beginning. Uh, he converts the show in a- to AAC, adds all the chapters and-, and links and all of that stuff, which I know many of you love. And Downcast supports that, by the way. I know we talked about that earlier in the show. So, uh, so you can see all that great stuff in there. Thank you, Dave, Michael. speaking of that, I think an anniversary is coming up. No, June, not June your- 13th. Ah, it's on your calendar too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. So June. I believe June thirteenth. So we we started this uh, brouhaha here in uh, two thousand five. Start this two thousand five. This will be our ninth anniversary, June thirteenth. Ah. Uh, almost a decade. Yeah, we'll, right. we'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, uh, I hope so. <laughs> that's right. Cashfly dot com. C a c h e f l y dot com provides all the bandwidth to get the show from us to you. Barebones Software, Smile at smilesoftware.com, Gazelle, squarespace.com, slash MGG, Rage Software at everwebapp.com, ifixit.com, and now, of course, E3 Software, all part of the podcast marketplace. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to have some wonderful sponsors. John, I have two pieces of advice, as we said at the beginning of the show. Two? Yes, that's right. Don't panic and don't get caught. Made up.